we're installing so solar panel, solar PV panels on the roof next next month. And then we've switched a lot of our equipment to lithium. So our two ride-on greens mowers are lithium. Our hand mowers are now lithium. And most of our utility vehicles are lithium. So then the, the panels and the lithium trucks will start going hand in hand. Welcome to Golf Sustainability, the podcast dedicated to advancing sustainability of the environment and the game of golf for future generations. Hosted by Golf Sustainability founder, John Fiella. The Golf Sustainability podcast will feature conversations with industry leaders on the environmental and social issues impacting the future of the game. Let's tee off. Hi, everyone. I'm John Fiella, and welcome to the Golf Sustainability Podcast. I'm looking forward to a really great conversation today as my guest is Graham Beat, who's course manager at Royal Portrush Golf Course in Ireland. Graham is in the center of some really fascinating work right now as Royal Portrush is getting ready to host the 153rd Open in 2025. I know we're in for a really interesting conversation with Graham. Graham, welcome to the Golf Sustainability Podcast. It's great to have you with us. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. And it was really nice getting to meet you last month when I was out there. We had a great day at the course. It's just, it's a very special place and it was in great shape. Yeah, apologies for the rain. <laughs> <laughs> We've, we got through 17 holes, so that, that was plenty for me. Graham, let's start by having you tell us a little about your background, your personal journey, what's led up to your current role as course manager at uh, Royal Portrush. Yeah, I'm from Scotland. I grew up playing Lynx golf. Always loved the outdoors, loved the sports. And then I was looking for a job outside and my parents had suggested greenkeeping and took a while to think about it and then got a job on my local course. And worked the summer and just fell in love with it. Uh, just came from that, really. Uh, enrolled in college, uh, did my college course, and then I stayed at my local course for five or six years. And then I moved on to Kings Barnes. And that was a real massive learning curve for me. That was, we went into there towards the end of construction and stayed there for six years with a short stint at Royal Melbourne in the middle. And then decided it was time to try and get a, a management job. So I uh, ended up moving to Ireland. I took a job in Sligo, um, another new golf course, and mm -hmm. um, stayed there for maybe five years. Then I got a job at County Sligo Golf Club, Harry Coke course, mm -hmm. in, best course in, in Sligo. And did a good job there, I think. Uh, stayed there for three years, and then the job came up in Port Rush, and I just couldn't not apply for it. I've always thought about Royal Port Rush eventually, and the job came up, and the word was the Open was coming back as well. So I was so lucky to to get the job, and it's been really all go ever since. It's been really busy few years uh, with the preparations for the last Open Championship in in twenty nineteen. And all the work that went into preparing for that. And then we've obviously been really busy ever since. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting journey. I have to ask, how did you end up in Royal Melbourne? I had 
I was looking just for another experience. I wanted to go abroad. I wanted to learn. And I just wanted something different, a new experience. And I was married at the time. My wife and I met at 18 and got married at 23. And I'd, we'd both decided that we wanted to travel before we had kids and all that sort of stuff. And then I had written to the RNA asking about scholarships and things. And I'd met with some people from the RNA and they'd agreed to a scholarship for me. That's awesome. And in return for, they paid my flights there and back. And then I, I wrote them some reports based around the maintenance over there versus in Scotland. And another report about the Heineken Classic that was on when I was there. Yeah. It was a great experience. Amazing. Yeah. And, and you were also on assignment for the RNA, which, which is interesting. That ties in nicely to one of the one of the values and principles that I'm trying to instill with golf sustainability is it there's an opportunity for courses to learn from one another, not only locally, but around the world. And my, my observation is that things are certainly more advanced in Europe and the UK than they are in the States. So one of the reasons I'm so excited about having you on the podcast is that I think there are a lot of there are a lot of things that can be learned and shared here to to the benefit of superintendents here in the states, and it's interesting to see how the RNA was wise enough to ask you to see what was happening at Royal Mel Melbourne and uh, and report back. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say I think that sustainability is it's obviously been around for a lot longer than we've been talking about. I think greenkeeping originally was so sustainable. People used to make fertilizer with, with seaweed they would collect from the beach. They would use sand from the beach. It's not always been a case of making fertilizers and shipping them worldwide and all that sort of thing and chemicals and things like that. So I think it's just maybe a case of being conscious of, of what you're doing and, and why you're doing it. Yeah, that awareness and consciousness is a big part of it. Now, I one of the things I noticed in your background is that most superintendents are involved in some sort of continuing education. That that tends to really focus on greenskeeping related topics. And I noticed you you attended and completed a high impact leadership course at uh, the University of Cambridge, which really stood out to me. Um, How'd that come about? Why'd you take it? And did you feel it was, did you feel it was valuable? I suppose the open was done and dusted and I felt like I had a little bit of headspace for doing something like that. And it's like, we're all, we all try and improve ourselves and improve our golf courses. And I, my general manager was, was chatting to him about, I was keen to do a course and he was all for it and he was really encouraging and, I just searched around, really. I was looking for a management course. I'd done management as part of my greenkeeping education, but not a specific course. Um, it took me a little while to find the one I wanted, but I was I was glad I did it. It was only a short course. It was eight weeks or nine weeks, and um, there was quite a lot of work involved, and I put in quite a lot with it, I thought, but I was glad I did it. It was beneficial, I think. That's great. That leadership development will, I'm sure, serve you well going forward. It, it's great to get that background on you, Graham. Let, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about Royal Port Rush. There's a great history behind the course, and maybe you could start by telling us about 
some of the heritage behind the course and give us some background on Royal Portrush. Yeah, so I suppose Royal Portrush has been around since 1888. Over the years, it really hasn't been adverse to change. The golf course used to start beside the train station in the town, and it used to play down into the land that the golf course is at now. Then the course moved away from the town, and the club bought more land further away and moved it in closer to the the beach and the dunes. And then in the late twenties, Harry Coat was employed by the club to redesign both courses. So they're, they're the courses. Generally speaking, that we have now the Dunluce course is the the main championship course that hosts the Open, um, and then the Valley course is another course which is also really nice. And then in 2015, Mackenzie and Ebert made some more changes to enable us to host the Open Championship in 2019. I think because the Open had grown so much, you need so much space for all the hospitality areas the tented village, the shop and all the rest of it, that the golf course as it was wouldn't have been able to to host an open. So we made more changes and then we're about to make another lot of changes this winter. Yeah, it really seems more and more like the space for fans and hospitality are now driving where where mm-hmm. these majors can be played. What So from an environmental standpoint, has environmental responsibility been kind of part of the heritage? What's the perspective been at Royal Portrush about sustainability over the years? I think it has. I know my predecessor, Joe Finley, he used to use a lot of seaweeds and organic fertilizers and very little chemicals and I think we've continued that road, really. Even the construction that we we did the last time round in 2015, 2016, uh, the RNA and Mackenzie Niebert, are, I think they're really responsible in the way that we planned it and executed all of the work. Everything mm-hmm. reused and recycled. Any turf that we possibly could lift and relay, we did, um, including the sand dunes, the marram grass. Um, we were lifting... Uh, nine-inch thick slabs of marram grass with diggers and relaying it so that we weren't disturbing the the surface. Um, and that was a big expense to do that. But at the same time, I think environmentally, it was really a responsible thing to do. Yeah, that sounds like that was a pretty big project. The On the website, the, there's a page dedicated to the whole topic of course development and sustainability Maybe we can talk a little bit about that. And I've got, I I actually printed it out here and it it talks about the overall aim is to create a world-renowned golf complex. And there are numerous objectives that are referenced. And one of the things you mentioned related to this was that the Valley course is, is about to be renovated. Can you tell us a little about that project with an eye towards the sustainability elements of it? Yeah, I suppose a few years ago, the club went through a a strategic planning exercise. Uh, The members voted on what they saw for the future of the Valley course and the golf club and that sort of environmental responsibility as well. And so unanimously that the members wanted Rush to be a world leader in sustainability, also they wanted the Valley course to be world-renowned as well, so a world-renowned 36-hole complex rather than just the 18. Um, so then 
because of the result of that, then we looked around at different designs that we could achieve our goal really with the Valley course. Um, Martin Ebert, who's our architect, he drew up eight different designs um, and the club whittled it down to, to one or two and then decided to go for the one that we're, we're planning this winter. Um, so this winter will be a rebuild of the driving range and the whole front line of the Valley, which will include three new holes and major changes to five of them, five of the other holes. And then we've got some RNA stuff for the open as well going on and some new roads and things. Yeah, okay. That was an ambitious project. Eight designs to pick from. That architect was busy. I think it says a lot about him as well, though he wanted to come up with something that the members would love. You know, all the work that went into doing that. I think it says a lot about him. And that was Martin Ebert, you said was his name? Yeah, yeah, from Mackenzie and Ebert. He's an absolute perfectionist, but he, he loves the game. He's great. Interesting. It sounds like somebody I'm going to need to get to meet. Yeah. Uh, when we visited at Royal Portrush last month, Graham, you were really excited about a number of the things that you have been doing in terms of current sustainability initi initiatives around transitioning your fleet, looking at different fuels to use, things that you're doing around water conservation. Let's talk a little bit, share with us some of the things that you know, you've done most recently around sustainability initiatives. Yeah. I suppose it, st it started between myself and the general manager. The general managers really pushed a lot of this. Uh, we came up with the ideas together and then he's done a lot of work in the background to bring it together. So we were, uh, from my side for the, the golf course, we're, we're installing so solar panel, solar PV panels on the roof next, next month. And then we've switched a lot of our equipment to lithium. So our two ride-on greens mowers are lithium. Our hand mowers are now lithium. And most of our utility vehicles are lithium. So then the, the panels and the lithium trucks will go in hand. Um, the panels will charge our equipment. We've switched some of our fuel to HVO. So hydrogenated vegetable oil. So bio, a biofuel. Mm -hmm. So there's 90% less emissions with those than there is with diesel. We've done really basic things like do an audit of our irrigation system. We're not watering rough. We've made adjustments and used tails on sprinklers rather than doing 360 degree watering. We've changed our electricity provider to a renewable source. Mm -hmm. uh, we've changed the boiler in the clubhouse from our old 25-year-old boiler. We use heating oil here, so uh -huh. not kerosene. So we've changed that to bio-LPG. So that's 90% less emissions as well or more. We changed all our lighting to LED. So there's 220 light fittings in the clubhouse have been changed to LED, and there's sort of movement sensors with those as well. Our heating system, we've got a... It's like an intelligent heating system, a smart system you can use on your iPad and you can turn off certain rooms and it'll automatically heat rooms if they're being used. And yeah, and then we've got vehicle charging points being installed as well next month. So busy for the couple of years we've been doing it. We've we've done quite a few bits and pieces and then there's like easy stuff like recycling. We, we were terrible. 
we weren't good at recycling, but we're doing all of that now and all the on-course waste recycled and things as well. So it's out, it, it's really the scope of what you've done is pretty interesting from a, from an emissions footprint standpoint. I know that the kind of the energy use associated with your vehicles and your maintenance fleet and the clubhouse are really big drivers there. And the, the conversion to lithium fleet and the conversion to biofuels, were there challenges associated with the cost of converting that? Or did you look at what you'd be saving over the life of the equipment? Tell us a, a little more about that conversion process. Yeah, so the initial purchase of the lithium equipment is, is pretty expensive. But then I suppose if there's payback on the solar panels, once they've paid themselves off, do they then offset the equipment? They're charging the equipment, so there's then there's no diesel costs and things like that. There's no servicing with them either. The biodiesel, there was no switchover at all. You just ran the tank down with the diesel and then just filled up with the biofuel. Right. And which was amazing. You didn't even have to change the fuel filters or anything, which I was surprised about. I was a bit worried about it. I've started off with the oldest equipment because if it broke or blew up, then it'd be fine. That's good risk management. That's very good risk <laughs> management. Uh, talking to Toro now, they were, they've said as well that the the equipment will run fine on it. Um, the RNA, I'd got wind of the RNA using the biofuel in their generators. Mm-hmm. So all the generators that run all the TV screens and things for the open, they were already using that in their generators as part of their sustainability work. So you were able to leverage some of the things that were already being done elsewhere. The yeah. um yeah, that's that's fascinating. One a key concept, and once again, based on my experience, while I'm new to the golf world, I've been in sustainability for over 12 years. But something that you see very often is that in adopting new technology, there's a high upfront cost, which will often prevent people from doing it. But when you conduct the analysis that you did that said, okay, over time, we're gonna have these savings, it'll be reduced maintenance, it'll be no fuel costs. If you look at what I refer to as the total cost of ownership over a period of time, you get a payback. And typically, if something will pay back within a couple, three years, it's generally considered a good move. There's there's other bits and pieces as well. The likes of the green s'mores, there's no oil in them. (laughs) You've almost eliminated your risk of uh, damage to the turf. We've had oil leaks on greens before. We had one a few months before the Open Championship the last time. It's not nice to get a phone call on a Saturday morning and I've had an oil leak. So even that peace of mind as well, it's good. And the operators love them because they're quiet. Yeah, that's that's really smart. And you need that overall view. Now, one thing that I have found being problematic in taking that overall view is that that high, the savings may be realized by another department. And as a result, there's, you know, you really need collaboration. It sounds like your GM has been supportive. Does this all start with your strategic plan and commitment to be environmentally responsible that's allowed you to do this? Or like, tell me about the relationship you have with the GM. It sounds like you're an effective working team and he's not pushing back on ideas that you have. 
Yeah, I think the way our clubs run, we've got it's run by the members. Basically, they've got a, a management council that will approve all the sort of bigger decisions, financial decisions. Our general manager and myself would bring a case if it was for the golf course. I'd bring it to Links Council, then it would go to Management Council. But they've all been really supportive. They're all really keen to make a difference and and keen to be seen to be leaders in. Uh, sustainability as, as as well as other things really but yeah the general managers really kept going with it and he's grinding it all out just to make sure that we we get there in the end <clears throat> so it's been good that's great you've got a really interesting road in front of you right i think 24 months from now graham you are breathing this great sigh of relief but up until 23 months from now you may be pulling your hair out a little bit. Tell us about some of the things that you're doing to get ready for the 153rd Open at Royal Port Rush in 2025. At the moment, we're, I suppose we're looking at all these changes. We've got spectator areas being extended. So some of our tented village areas, catering areas that we used the last time. This time round, they're just going to be too small. Uh, we're going to have more spectators again. So that's keeping us busy at the moment. In terms of the turf and the golf course, got a new championship tee being built. We did some stuff last winter, some new tees and things. Some of the bunkers that we built this winter will be there for the Open. So I suppose this is our first kind of big year of, of prep for it. In terms of turf quality and things, we try and maintain that to as high a standard as we can. So I'm not be thinking too much about that at the moment. Yeah. Uh, now, yeah, the construction on the valley to look forward to. So that's going to keep <laughs> Yes, that's right. You have this small project called Making the Valley, elevating the status of that to a world-renowned course. Man, you guys are ambitious. With the open two years away, you've got that renovation project just in front of it, which is interesting. Now, when we talked last month out at Royal Port Rush, I know you referenced the you've got a commitment to be carbon neutral by the open. Can you tell us a little about that, the process to make that commitment and what all is going to have to be done between now and then to achieve that? Yeah, I suppose we with working with Geo, they had done a sustainability scorecard for us. Mm-hmm. It was really it made it really simple to understand that, that there was quite a sort of in-depth report, but also there was pie charts showing where your emissions were. And we just focused on the biggest things, really, the things that would make the biggest difference. So we've kind of done those now. We've done the fossil fuels through heating oil, through the machinery, electricity usage. We've tried to cut that through irrigation, through the lighting in the clubhouse. And there's Tons more things we can do, but I think we're most of the way there. We've still got a few things to to do, obviously, the solar panels that I talked about. And by the time we've done that, we're hoping we'll be there, but we need, we're going to try and get an independent sort of verifier to, to go through all of our emissions and just make sure that we, we've done it. But yeah, our captain, about a year and a half ago, our captain had said on TV that he wanted, that he was sure that we were going to be carbon neutral for 2025. So we kind of made that commitment for us. 
<laughs> yeah, I've seen that all so often where a senior leader makes a commitment really without knowing exactly what's involved and making it happen. And then they turn to a manager or a leader like yourself and say, okay, Graham, now we've got this commitment, go make it happen. But I, I, I don't know you extremely well, but from the little that I do know about you, my sense is you're going to figure it out and get it done. You, this is a really good segue to talk about partnerships that are necessary because you referenced the Geo Foundation and they do really interesting work. I hope to get to know them better. Let's talk about some of the partnerships that have been important in your sustainability journey. And why don't we start with Geo? When did you start working with them? What does the relationship with them look like? Tell us about your work with the Geo Foundation. Yes, yeah, so I only really came across Geo whenever I started in Port Rush. Um, and not long after I'd started, we had to complete our verification, our certification. So to go through that whole process of, of submitting all of our usage, water, waste, fertilizer, chemical, and there's so much to it. But I suppose they need all of that information to then build the, the bigger picture. So that was really my first dealings with them. And then we got certified. So then every year you have to submit all of your usage and of, of all different sorts of things. So yeah, that, that was, there was only really more recently that I'd had more conversation with them. And then we got our scorecard, sustainability scorecards and reports and things. And that's been really helpful in our journey, trying to get to carbon neutral. Nice. When you get that scorecard, do they highlight, make recommendations for things you should be working on? Or is that really up to you to take the scorecard and decide what you're going to do next? I think it's more left to us to decide what we want to do, but yeah, it makes comparisons. It makes comparisons like you so many tons of carbon through, say, heating oil. That would be the equivalent to flying X amount of miles. Something like there's all these comparisons and it actually makes you think about it and think, actually, maybe we, we need to do something about that. <laughs> well, Excellent. They are certainly a reputable group. They're not as high profile in the States as they are in, in Europe. And I do look forward to getting to know them better. How about the RNA? I'm really, I'm impressed with them as an organization. When I was at St. Andrews last month, I had a chance to visit there. They've got this new museum, the, the RNA Golf Museum, right there off the, behind the old clubhouse at St. Andrews. And they had a whole section devoted to sustainability, which I found interesting. What, if any, help and support has the RNA lent in terms of your sustainability efforts and program? I suppose I picked up lots of bits and pieces from them in terms of what they're doing. Like I was saying with the, the biodiesel in their generators, John Kemp, who worked for Geo, is working for the RNA now. And then some of our some of the agronomists that would have worked for the STRI are now working for the RNA and they're covering sustainability as well. Uh, so I know the RNA have put a, a big focus into doing that. And then the water stations they put in. So instead of, they'll have these water stations that are filtered water, sell flasks, and then it does away with disposable cups and things. I can't remember the number of cups that it 
it prevented going into the landfill, but it was something like 300,000 cups. And even by doing things like that, we've ended up putting these water stations on the golf course. So you get chilled, spill, uh, still or sparkling. And then again, it's encouraging people not to buy sort of disposable plastic bottles. Um, people are bringing their own flasks now and maybe buying flasks from the clubhouse as well. So yeah, the, the, the RNA are doing lots of things in terms of becoming more sustainable, carbon neutral, maybe, I don't know. Um, yeah. But they've been a bit of an inspiration. That's great. I'd like to say that sustainability is a team sport and suppliers, partners play a big role in whether it be a manufacturing company or commercial retail company or golf course operator. What are, I know you mentioned Toro. Tell us about some of the key supplier relationships that you have that have helped in your sustainability projects and what do those relationships look like? I suppose for us, we've, we try and purchase most things locally. I, I, I mentioned Toro, they've been quite good in that they're always developing new equipment. The, the lithium stuff has come on a long way since the old lead, lead acid batteries. <laughs> where you'd run out of you'd run out of battery halfway around the golf course and you'd be crawling home. The we would buy seaweed that's harvested in Ireland, processed in Ireland, and it's almost next door. So we're always like trying our best to buy locally, but it doesn't always work. So I suppose if you were talking about partners, we've got quite a lot really. The golf club, the the kitchen as well, they would always try and buy locally. And I think it's just a, a thing that we have throughout the whole golf club. Maybe most places are the same. I don't know. But you, I think you need buy-in from everyone, really, don't you, to to try your best to get everything locally and try your best to reduce your waste and all that sort of stuff too. Yeah. The relationship with Toro, do, do they get your input up front on kind of new products they're developing? Or what's the ongoing communication like between you and Toro? There's more and more communication. To be honest, there wasn't that much when I first started there, but there's becoming more and more. And I think Toro over here are improving that way too. But we, yeah, we've had visits from some of the development people working with Toro based around some of the electric equipment and what could be better. What would you like to see? And what about this and what about that? And see, seeing if you would be keen on it. No, they're quite good that way. Yeah, I, I know suppliers are always looking for customers for pilot projects. Is that, and some people are open to participating in a pilot project. Others are not. They'll, they're like, okay, bring this to me when it's proven and developed and working. What's your point of view on participating in pilot projects that suppliers may have? On, on something they're developing that can uh, be helpful. Yeah, yeah. For me, equipment or products as well. We're quite lucky in that we have the two golf courses and we have lots of practice facilities and we've got a couple of six hole courses. So usually, things would start there and then right. work their way up towards the championship course. So that that's the way that we would work our staff as well. When they first start with us, they would work their way up through the courses. We don't necessarily have a split staff, but we, people would graduate towards the, sure. the championship 
of course. And we do the same with products and uh, maybe because we're out of the way a little bit, we wouldn't generally get sort of new equipment to to, to trial. Um, but we do have some local manufacturers, like some of our uh, groundsmen who make our sod cutters and they make aerators and things. They're only like right. 10 miles away. Right. So we've got bits and pieces from them before. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So you're well along your sustainability journey, Graham, at Royal Portrush for a superintendent that's listening to this episode and they say, hey, I think I want to put more of a committed program in place. What what would you suggest as being the first steps that that someone can take towards making yeah. their golf course operations more sustainable? I'm absolutely no expert in sustainability. There's lots of people all over the UK who have been doing this for years, and we're fairly new to actually doing something about it. But for me, I, I focused on the bigger things. So the sustainability scorecard, that was really useful to me. It just put it in simple terms. And I could see on the pie chart that this bigger piece was where most of our emissions were, which was heating oil and I think having a supportive general manager who'll fight for change and getting having that support as well. But I, I, for me, I think pick the biggest things and sometimes pick the easy wins as well. Uh, the likes of the recycling bins and things like that. It's easy to do in terms of your carbon footprint. It maybe doesn't have a massive impact, but at the same time, it's the right thing to do. Yeah. You're obviously very modest, right? Because you've actually done a lot of good work. So you may be more of an expert than you think. But the the, the those three points, Graham, I, I think, and I held up four fingers by mistake. I should have held up three. Those three points that you made are actually really very solid. And I've seen it as being the case in other industries when people are just getting started. And these are the three things I heard you say. Get a good read. You did it with the scorecard, but get a good read for where you are right now. Get an idea of what the opportunities are. What are the areas for improvement? And your point of view is to pick off uh, pick off a big one first. When you get the GM on board, getting buy-in from the people that you're going to need to support your efforts is critical. Yeah. Um, because without buying, you can't make any progress. And your third point was go for some easy wins. And I also have talked about this with other superintendents, and that is get some easy wins, particularly where you can save some money because people see an easy win, they see results, and they see savings, financial savings that will encourage them to try more. So I think getting a read of where you are, get buy-in from senior leadership and go for some easy wins. I think those are three great pointers for people who are for people who are just getting started. Listen has been great. We've talked a lot about you. We've talked about the history of Royal Port Rush. We've talked about getting ready for the open. We've talked about some of your partnerships. I like to wrap up each episode of the Golf Sustainability podcast, Graham, by getting to know my guests on a non on subjects unrelated to golf. So I've got a couple of questions I'd like you to get a field here. And that is personally, you're obviously ambitious as a young, as a, as a kid, you 
thought you wanted to do greenskeeping, you pursued it, you wanted an international experience, you went halfway around the world, and you're tackling big things now. So what drives you? What would you say is really what motivates you? Probably fear of failure would be <laughs> would be something fairly major. I think also just setting a high standard for myself and for the golf course. I think I'll know the golf course isn't good enough before I'd get a complaint. I think that's important. I think having high standards yourself is really important and probably being your biggest crit- critic. <laughs> so, yeah, I would say that's. Yeah, you that, that's. Fear of failure is something that 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 motivates many. I I had the unique opportunity to get to know uh, Sam Walton from Walmart stores earlier in my uh, career, and as wild and as successful as he was, constantly afraid of not getting done what he wanted to get done, and he ran paranoid, and it was that that there's a little bit of insecurity that really propelled him and the fact that you don't want to lose and you set the bar high with high expectations for yourself is that would explain why you're that would explain in part as why you're as uh, successful as you are who's inspired you do you have someone that you'd say was your greatest inspiration or do you get inspiration from other sources what who or what inspires you lots of I suppose there's been lots of people over the years. I think when I went from Scotts Craig, my home course, to work at King's Barnes, it was just a much bigger scale and the standard was set. There was a much higher bar. So I think Stuart McComan and his night were there. And I think that made me realise that there was much bigger things. And then going to Royal Melbourne and seeing that and the different styles and the, I just I don't know, I just love golf. So I'd, yeah. I, I've met lots of people over the years. It's hard to pick one, but I suppose I picked my wife. There you um, go. Ah, good answer. <laughs> all the reason to work hard. <laughs> good answer. And I know you're obviously a very strong family man, and we've talked a little about your your two daughters. So I know there's that drive for family and inspiration for family is certainly very important. So what would you consider your greatest challenge that you've had to face and overcome? I think the hard, one of the hardest things in, in turf industry is moving from being a greenkeeper to a manager. I think that's I think that's probably that's one of the hardest challenges. And even having the confidence to do that as well, I think there maybe needs to be, I don't know, maybe there is in the States, but I think there needs to be a wee bit more help for people to be able to do that. I think Bigger have been quite good in recent years in starting a future turf managers program. I think for a greenkeeper, that's one of the hardest things, really, because there's not a massive amount of opportunities. There's lots of greenkeepers and there's not that many managers. I think that's probably one of the hardest challenges. Yeah, that's how big is your team now? You're, you're... There's 29 of us. 29, so we've got two mechanics and obviously irrigation tech and spray techs and things like that as well. And then what will that look like for the open? Because I know you wind up with lots of volunteers. What will your operation 
and I'm sorry, we're getting back to golf. I said, we're going to no. talk about things other than golf, but it, it just hit me that from a management standpoint, the scope of being able to execute the open must be incredible. Yeah, it's, we took in the last time round. we, I suppose there was an element of unknown for us because it was such a massive event. And the last time Portrush hosted the Open was 1951. I don't know how many spectators there were then, but there's probably a few thousand. Uh, And then you're jumping to 230-something thousand spectators. Um, So there was an element of unknown for us. We probably had a few too many volunteers, but we were trying to cover every eventuality. So I think we had 58 the last time round. Right. And... Yeah, we've got a great team ourselves. Our, I'm really lucky we've got a, a great team. I've got a great, brilliant deputy. Um, we've got first assistants and everyone takes a bit of responsibility, so that's good. But I think next time round, we'll probably have a slightly smaller staff, maybe 45, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Look, with 30 of your regular team plus 50 volunteers, that's a team of 80 to make sure that the course is in in tip-top shape. That's a lot of people to manage. And congratulations on what's obviously been a very successful transition from being a greenkeeper into management. Down the road, how would would you like to be uh, remembered as in the industry? What is it you're hoping to leave behind for future generations? Sure, really. That's a tough question. I suppose... I don't think I'm I'm really a very inspiring person, but I'd, I'd I'd like to I'd like to set a new standard for Port Rush anyway, and I'd like for that to continue and improve. And I love the the construction and the course development. So in terms of my own golf course, I'd like to keep going with that and see how good we can make it. And then if that inspires other people, that's fine. That's great. Your modesty shines through once again. And thank you for, thanks for your willingness to address these questions that are more of a personal nature, but I think they really provide some insight on you and what drives you and why you do what you do. So Graham, thanks very much. I I, I can't thank you enough for participating in the golf sustainability podcast. I, I appreciate you. And if I'm lucky, I'll be out there for the 153rd Open in 2025. It'd be good to see you. And it was really nice to meet you when you were over. Thanks very much for having me today. Well, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Graham. Thanks. And to our listeners who are in on this episode of the podcast, thanks very much for being a part of the golf sustainability community. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on your uh, favorite uh, podcast player. And if you're not already doing so, follow us on social media. Golf Sustainability has a presence on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks very much for joining us today. Have a great day, and we'll see you next episode. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Golf Sustainability Podcast. Take action on the ideas inspired by this episode. You can find out more about golf sustainability in the show notes for each podcast episode and following us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast player, and we'll see you soon on another episode of the Golf Sustainability Podcast.